Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Ben Brabend from Saddleback Valley Communities. Before we dive in, I want to ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds to head over to iTunes and rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that five-star review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Ben's current portfolio consists of 46 mobile home parks across nine states, which is approximately 5,200 mobile home park lots and over a thousand park owned homes. Ben is a past president and current board member of the Rocky Mountain Manufactured Housing Association. And prior to the real estate space, Ben was an LA police officer and a Naval intelligence specialist. Ben, we are excited to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Andrew, good to be with you. Awesome, would you mind starting out by telling our listeners your story and how in the world you went from being an LA police officer to getting into manufactured housing communities. <laughs> sure. Well, it was a, a kind of a windy path. There, it wasn't a straight line by any means, but I had a passion for real estate uh, at a pretty young age, um, going back to like literally junior high and high school. But I knew that I wanted to get married. I got married fairly young at 19 and, and wanted to have a family. The only thing I knew about real estate was an uncle who was either driving the coolest car or trying to borrow money from my parents who didn't have any money. So even though I was very passionate about real estate at a young age, I didn't pursue it. And I went with what I thought was a more conventional path, something more stable. So I ended up in, in the military and in law enforcement. But even while I was on probation with LAPD, I was looking at real estate and ended up participating in a program called Officer Next Door, where I got to buy a HUD home at 50% off. And so from that point on, even while you know, as a young police officer, I was I was starting to do flip homes. So I did a lot of fix and flips, actually did some spec home building and got introduced to manufactured housing through that process where I was basically buying lots. And instead of stick building spec homes, I started using multi-section manufactured homes. And that led me to get a, a dealer's license in like 2002 or 2003. So we were pit setting double wides and then building site-built garages. So they looked like and we even stucco wrapped them. So they looked very much like a, a traditional stick built home. They were priced similarly and did that for a number of years. And, and that's kind of the introduction to manufactured housing, but that's kind of a don't kill, don't eat business. And sure. so I, I was looking for more passive and or recurring income. And that's how I ended up making my way into the park business. Wow. What a fantastic story. And maybe, so was all of this on the side while you were police officer just kind of doing this, you know, all the yeah. fix and flips in addition? Yeah. So, and and I, what, I finally made the move out of law enforcement and into this by getting my real estate license. So I was literally a retail real estate agent and doing all my real estate activity on the side. So I had about a three-year period where I was sort of full-time real estate, but I was a, a real estate agent earning commissions. And I used that, those commissions kind of chunk money to buy you know, some rentals, but a lot of flips and some of the land that I bought and ultimately developed and later duplexes and triplexes and apartment buildings, 20, 30 unit apartment buildings and things like that. So, yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. Would you mind telling us about your first mobile home park that you sure. 
bought? How'd you get educated on the space and, and yeah, how that deal came together? Yeah. So I actually had done a fix and flip in a mobile home park that um, was a big lesson for me because even though it was profitable, it was, there was a ton of aspects or, you know, things about that deal that I didn't understand in terms of the dynamics of a, of a mobile home park. So I had been looking for a park for probably a year and a half before I ultimately purchased the first one. And I was doing the classic looking in my backyard and looking at deals that I could afford, which was not a lot. But ultimately, I went one state away. My first park I purchased in 2005 in New Mexico. It was a 42 space park. I bought it for 450 grand. I put down 200,000 and the seller carried 250 and made about every classic mistake you could imagine. Mostly due diligence, things like electrical infrastructure, sewer lines. But mostly the mistake was around the assumptions that it would take to fill those roughly 20 vacant lots. Um, the capital need, you know, is very capital intensive. It took about twice as long as I thought. Ultimately, it was a big success story, um, made a ton of money on the park and held it for quite a long time. But, um, but that was my first one and, and certainly learned a lot from that one. Yeah. Oh, wow. That so. is fantastic. And where are you based at now? I'm actually in San Diego. Most of the portfolio, well, the concentration with most of our back office and our team is in Colorado. I lived there for about seven years before moving here. Um, and so most of the organization is still based out of Colorado. And I still have my, my, my ranch in Colorado as well. So the plan was going back and forth between San Diego and Colorado, but I don't get back to Colorado as much as I'd like. So very cool. Yeah. Well, that is awesome. What do you think is the toughest hurdle to overcome in mobile home park investing? You know, I consider this business really simple and straightforward, but at the same time, it's not easy. And I think a lot of people don't understand the nuances. So I think there's a lot of assuming that turns out to be more complicated because the concept is super simple, right? You, you own the dirt, you rent the space, people own their home. And in the traditional sense, it's a pretty straightforward. I mean, the only thing perhaps more straightforward would be a parking lot. But that all that said, the day-to-day -day operations and the nuances within the industry are a lot more complicated. Financing, regulation, misunderstanding with a lot of local governments. So I think those types of things become challenges that surprise people. And particularly if they look at like my first park, you know, it's 40, 40 spaces, there's 20 vacant, I'm going to plug in five homes a year and, you know, the park's going to be worth so much more. And the journey from filling that park, which I ultimately did, took literally twice as long, probably twice as much money. And all kinds of things came up along the way that I just had no understanding of, even having owned apartments and things like that prior to. So I think it's just the learning curve. It's totally achievable and certainly don't want to dissuade anyone. I think it's one of the best things you could get into, but you know, you just have to persevere. You have to kind of get educated and learn from as many people as you can prior to taking those lumps yourself. And then when you take them, you've got to take them in stride and you know, learn that lesson and then don't repeat the mistake. So totally. Yeah. yeah. And how did you get educated? Did you go to like the Frank and Dave boot camp? Was that around? Yeah, it wasn't then? around at the time. Actually, at the time that I got involved, I was there when Frank and Dave met. So yeah, they there used to be Steve Case and Corey Donaldson used to host mobile home millions events. Mm -hmm. So they had one in Anaheim, I think it was in 05 or 06. There was one in Austin a year or two later, and they, they were pretty large events, similar to maybe to like Seco now, mm -hmm. little different bent and, and a lot of the folks had, it wasn't a lot of education happening at the time. You know, Lonnie Scruggs had his deals on wheels and, um, you know, things like that were out, but it, it, there wasn't a ton of education going on at the time. But the, that was the group that was providing some education. 
And they hosted similar boot camps to Frank and Dave's today where, you know, you'd meet at a park and you'd, you'd walk with the owner of the park and kind of a two day intensive. And, and so I did participate in those. In fact, all over the country, I went to Georgia and Texas and Oklahoma and all over. And, and I basically, I guess that's one thing I was never afraid to invest in the education. And I, so I would fly anywhere. I'd pay the the 300 bucks or 500 bucks to attend or, or even a couple thousand. I did a lot of that on a regular basis. And I don't, I don't regret one dime of it or one minute that I spent doing it. So totally. Yeah, yeah. no, same here. I've been to the, the boot camp four times yeah. and I don't regret it at all. I've learned something new every single time I've gone yeah. and the networking at those events is fantastic as well. Um, so highly recommend that. I want to circle back. You mentioned Lonnie Scruggs. Yeah. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with my story, but that's how I started was a Lonnie oh, dealer. Is that and right? And around central Florida. And I just found Lonnie on YouTube, you know, talking about deals on wheels. Yeah. And that was like the only education I could find online back, you know, when I started, which was like 2015, 2016. So okay. that's fantastic. When I, did you buy that first park, the one in, in New Mexico? That was 2005. Yeah, 2005. that was 2005. Wow. So that was my first park. And I bought two others within 12 months of that first one. So we, I had a three park portfolio kind of within a mile radius of, of one another, which was, I guess it was about 180 sites collectively. And then we had about hundred apartment units in the same town. So we wow. put together a 300 unit sort of portfolio between the parks and the apartments in that market. That is so cool. I really wish I was getting into the spot in 2005. Yeah. Maybe I would have waited until like 2008, you know, to jump in. Yeah. But maybe what can you tell us about owning mobile home parks during the Great Recession, 2008 through 2010? And how did the parks perform and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I was really fortunate. You know, I kind of cut my teeth on those first few parks in, say, 05, 06. So when, when 08 hit, you know, unfortunately, I had a ton of friends in real estate in general that really took some hits. And I actually was able to make my biggest stride. I went from 300 units to about 1,100 units in 2008, 2009. And it was because of a, a large acquisition that I wouldn't have otherwise even had a shot at. I mean, the, the seller wouldn't even have spoken to me, um, given my size and lack of experience, but there was nobody else at the table. So the things I could tell you about sort of operating during economic hard times is, one, opportunities are likely to present that you may not have otherwise seen. Two, one of the biggest challenges is, is credit constraint. And that, that was certainly the case at the time. Lenders were afraid to do anything. Sellers, you know, there's price discovery to the downside throughout the entire journey. Um, and that lasted several years. I was able to make a couple of big acquisitions between 08 and say 2012. And those were great moments. And in terms of the park performance, we actually saw a significant increase in demand. We already had good demand, but you know, at the time, the big story was unfortunately lots of foreclosures and, and people losing homes. And part of the dovetail into our park-owned home strategy is we're able to attract a lot of those folks who are being dislocated and, and offer home ownership, but also offer rental options in the interim. And so, you know, I think that the takeaways were, you know, be prepared, be liquid. Uh, there's a good chance there's there's a, a lot of opportunity in those moments, but you're going to have challenges that you may not otherwise have seen over the last five years, primarily regarding your capital stack. So that that was my experience at the time, and that's what I'd anticipate. You know, should we encounter that again in the in the future? That is fantastic. Love to hear it. 
maybe tell us a little bit about what that portfolio looks like now. Like where are most of your parks? What does a typical park look like sure. size wise, et cetera? So we still have a big presence in Colorado. It's, it's kind of our biggest initial acquisition. We bought 750 units in one deal in Colorado and since then have added several additional parks. We've also moved into Arizona pretty aggressively and then also Wyoming and Utah. And I had a pretty big presence in Kansas. However, it's my first sort of disposition in nearly 20 years. So I've, I don't own anything in Kansas anymore, but we've also operated in Missouri and Oklahoma. I have a portfolio up in Maine of about a dozen parks. So, but, but basically sort of that Western, you know, Colorado, Arizona, Utah, that's, that's kind of our sweet spot. And in terms of individual deals, I, I prefer to buy portfolios where possible. And the big strategy for me is getting a foothold somewhere and planting a flag that's large enough to support the way that we operate and then bolting on around it. So I really like clustering and concentration. I, I don't like the shotgun approach. So we're not the group that's going to buy every deal that hits the market. If we don't already have you know, infrastructure in that market, it has to be a large enough deal to move into it and also compelling enough. And these days, we're really just building out around where we have higher comfort and have, you know, infrastructure. So very good strategy. And what what does that perfect mobile home park look like? Yeah, sure. So I just the last park I just bought this past month or in in August here is only a 52 space park. So we're not we're not um, you know exclusive to you know a 200 space park. But the perfect park I suppose would be 150 to 200 sites you know, public utilities, not a ton of common areas or amenities, strangely enough. But the other thing that's sort of probably a response that you don't hear a lot is we're really looking at whether the strength of the of the community itself. So I think it's a intangible that people kind of miss is, you know, if the if it's a tight knit, close knit community, they tend to do, you know, really well and you can build on that. Um, be, beyond that, we're really looking at the market. So, you know, supply demand is a big one. People talk a lot about median income and diverse employment and things like that. And those are all super critical in terms of our criteria. But in terms of the park specifically, you know, we've done really well with 150 to 200 space parks, particularly if we can, you know, have three or four of them in a market. That's, totally. that's kind of what we've done. Yeah. Tell me about that. You said the tight knit community. That's something that you look for. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So, you know, we've had some communities that were great, you know, physically, everything was great public utilities, nicely amenitized, good condition, sort of in terms of the infrastructure. But it was really difficult in some instances to get resident buy-in. And you know, we believe in sort of a philosophy of kind of, we put our foot forward first in terms of cleaning up communities. We don't come in and we never have come in and raised rent just right on acquisition. We really come in and try to understand the market, where we fit within the marketplace um, in terms of the, the offering that we that we have in comparison to the competitors. And then, you know, if it needs improvement or there's deferred things, we, we address that. Then we look at uh, our street rents and market rents. But, you know, in some cases, we've done all of those things and we still don't get the reaction and the response from the community. It's almost like there's some kind of ingrained bitterness. <laughs> and I can't say that this has happened to us a ton, but I, I mention it because when the opposite occurs and you move into a community that's, you know, the neighbors look out for each other, they're, they're looking for win-win situations with management and ownership. You know, those are just so much more fun. It's not that the others can't be profitable, but you know, you're swimming upstream the whole time and, and winning hearts and minds takes a lot more time than people realize. It takes the right on-site folks on our team. 
It takes us doing a lot of outreach in terms of, you know, backpacks back to school and barbecues in the park and movie night. And, you know, I, I really emphasize that because I think it's it's really critical going forward that you what we're offering is not just shade and shelter. We're, we're trying to build strong communities that are going to withstand, you know, the tough times and, and frankly, help look out for for the neighbors and for our asset as well. And that's just something you don't hear discussed enough, in my view. But it's it's really a big dif- differentiator between a strong asset and one that just sort of is profitable. That is fantastic. And I mean, we've had several operators on here, and I don't think anybody has mentioned that dynamic, which is yeah. really, really cool. Is there something you guys do in due diligence to try to tell if the community is going to be one of those tight-knit communities or if it's going to be you know, more of more of an isolated type of community. You know, it's really challenging because it is an intangible and therefore, you know, any sort of metric or quantifiable data is hard to come by. So it, it's really what I consider kind of the gorilla part of due diligence, where you're walking the park, you're talking to the folks, you're understanding, you know, it's easy to read Google reviews or easy to read, you know, some of the naysayers. And, and some of that is to be expected. You're going to encounter it virtually everywhere. It's easy to to believe when you're buying a deal that the previous ownership or management was just bad. And sometimes that's the case, but a lot of times, you, you know, they're not they're not as bad as they may be made out to be. Doesn't mean that we're not going to try to do better in every instance. But I guess the answer to your question is we do all those things. We we read reviews, but the big thing that we do different is we'll talk to as many of the existing residents as we possibly can face to face during our multi-day due diligence on site. And and that's tricky too, right? Because the manager, the owner, a lot of times they're trying to steer you away from those conversations, um, particularly if the reviews and and the property is not the way that it should be. But and and you also, I would say, you have to take those with a grain of salt too, because you're going to find people who are just looking yeah. to set you up for don't raise rent or you know leave us alone. But really, when you find the more genuine, authentic folks who are you know, just trying to get through life and, and live in a respectable community, you know, they shine through. And so listening to that and having your ears open for that, I think is is really all you can do in terms of that. That's huge. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. That's your customer. That's right. That's who is, you need to make sure is going to be someone that you, you want around. So You're right. That's, that's huge. Yeah. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. I want to sure. circle back. So do you do you do syndications, like one-off syndications, or do you have like a fund? Model? No, I've, I've never really raised outside money. So we've kind of recycled equity. And I, and I kind of had a, a small stable, I still do, a handful of LPs. So our, our structure is really, really simplistic. It's me as the sponsor GP and operator. And then I have literally a handful of folks that we collectively have been growing together for 25 years in, in real estate. Some of these folks were with me at, at my fix and flip single family home stage. Wow. And what we've done is, you know, as I moved into this space, they let me kind of get my toe wet a little bit and figure some things out. And then they followed me in. And so the difference though, the reason I've been able to do that and grow the portfolio to its size is some of these folks, you know, were high net worth people, their family offices. So I've not gone out and raised funds. I haven't done private placement memorandums. They're generally me and one partner or me and three to five people. And they're generally all repeat kind of LPs. So it's a very simple structure. And we also have paced ourselves around that strategy. So I've had opportunities, many instances for institutional capital partners and, or I've watched a lot of my peers raise a ton of money and, and really scale and grow 
dramatically faster. And I'll, and I'll be honest, I've, I've for a brief moment regretted given the increase in value and everything that maybe I should have done that. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm a simple guy. I have more than I need. And I really like the simplicity of our structure. I'm not really yeah. beholden to anybody. I take my responsibility to my LPs and my capital incredibly seriously, but I'm happy to have grown over a slow period, what, what I consider to be responsibly and safely. And I don't lose sleep overnight that any, that I'm going to lose any money or any of my, my partners will. So that's awesome. But that's how yeah. we've worked over the last de couple of decades. So no, thank you for sharing that. I mean, yeah. almost 20 years you've been in the space. That is absolutely fantastic. There's not many people that have been on the show that have been in the business that long. I think <laughs> there's been an influx of people, you know, around 2015 or so that kind right. of came into the business, Yeah, but you were, you were ahead of the game 10 years, you know, sooner. Yeah. So I would love to know, you know, we always hear about like what deals looked like back then. Yeah. Was it all every deal was a 10 or 11 cap, you know, when you first started looking? No. Well, and and honestly, maybe, you know, an eight or nine was probably today's five or six, realistically. But the same things um, happened there. You know, you had the juggernauts of the day were ARC. You know, today you've got RHP and ELS and Sun and, and a lot of these folks and a lot of them do a phenomenal job. But that their their equivalents existed at that time as well. So what a lot of us had that were starting out was secondary and tertiary smaller deals that didn't interest the bigger folks. Um, no doubt you have more consolidation today and certainly a lot more participants and entrants. Um, the the difference though is the capital. So at, back then your your available debt was dramatically different. You know today Fannie Freddie are kind of the biggest. They have the biggest share. And you know, CMBS was just a few years before that and still have a decent share. But back then it was a lot more uh, local and regional banks. Um, you know, Fannie Freddie would really, and insurance companies would really only do the what they consider to be five-star type top flight stuff. And we always looked for the value add stuff, the stuff that was, you know, in my, the way I would describe it is it had more value creation potential. Uh, they would describe it as hairier or unstable or distressed. And so the debt and available capital for stuff like that was dramatically different than it is today. And so while cap rates were higher, so was the cost of the capital and or lower LTVs and, and just a little bit more conservative underwrite. So I think that was some of the big differences. The, the competition level and the stuff we've seen, sort of the euphoria over the last few years, certainly didn't exist from 08 to 2012, <laughs> but, it, but it ramped from 12 to 15 and went, like you said, 15, 16, Things really got juiced up. And from then until probably eight, 10 months ago, you know, we were just on a crazy upward trajectory. And I, you know, personally, I've seen a bit of a cool off, but not enough to, to call a, a change in direction, but certainly a, a change in, in pace or sentiment from at least 15 to say 22. So totally. Yeah. yeah same with us. You know, there's yeah. still sellers. How do yeah. you buy most of your deals? Are they mainly listed deals? Uh, yeah, you know, the first big deal that I mentioned, strangely, well, so the first deal I bought, I bought off a of LoopNet, uh, directly, wow. direct seller listed as park, and, and that was my first deal. The other two, I kind of found word of mouth. So when you're in a market, you know, you kind of go meet your your quote unquote competitors. And we kind of just put the buzz, buzz out that, you know, we're in town, we're looking to grow. And funny enough, our manager talks to their manager. And the next thing you know, we're talking to the owner. So we've done that a fair amount. But Really lately, it's been broker relationships and or word of mouth. You know, that big deal I bought, I actually found it in the LA Times. 
And it's funny because people, I still find and buy deals occasionally that are listed on the MLS. Somehow, some way, they're not listed with a big broker. They may not even be on Mobile Home Park Store or one of these other places. So, you know, there's still a little bit of, you know, turning over the rocks. But generally speaking, our deal flow is pretty conventional. Sometimes we get a call before it hits the market or before the OM is published. And those are, you know, relationships with brokers that we've cultivated for a long time. And they know that we don't tie deals up. If we put it under contract, we have every intent and ability to close. Once or twice we haven't, but everybody involved understood why. But generally we don't kick tires and we're not just sending LOIs. We don't cold call. Um, But again, we're fairly opportunistic. We have pretty tight criteria in terms of geography. And, you know, we like to buy a few deals a year or, you know, we we end up with kind of a fits and starts where we'll buy, you know, five parks and then two years later we buy three more and we'll have literally a two year gap in between. And usually what we're buying in between is kind of bolt-ons. So things within the market that we're adding on. Um, and, and, and that's also a bandwidth issue. What one of the lessons I learned early on is particularly if you're trying to do a lot of value add, especially occupancy upside or infill parks, it takes a lot more time and energy and resources than people might imagine. So I've seen people come in and buy a whole bunch of stuff and they were probably strong acquisitions, but then they're unable to execute and they end up struggling and they end up with maturity, debt maturity concerns, or just stuff that they're really not comfortable with their own pace and progress. So we've kind of learned those lessons the hard way and not to say that we pass an opportunity, but we kind of gate our growth around our ability to digest it and and do a good job executing on it. That's huge. Yeah, no, and that goes back, like I was at MHI in Vegas and there was institutional capital guy that approached and said, Hey, I want to write you a check for, you know, $50 million to buy up a bunch of mobile home parks. And I said the same thing. I was like, that doesn't sound feasible, especially right now. And and I think it's, it's a personnel thing. I mean, I don't know about you, but we manage in house and like to be able to trust all the people that you would need to onboard to be able to scale that quickly would just, it's just too much stress that I wasn't ready for. But do you guys manage in, in-house, Brad? Yeah, yeah. So we have a management company that's sort of a sister entity, if you will, that that I own and operate. And so that's so everything that I buy, I manage. And I and at the same time, I don't do any fee-based management. So if I don't have an ownership stake, I don't I don't manage for others. So that's how we operate. And and I would echo exactly what you said. The last two years in particular has been incredibly challenging with with labor and talent and building our team. And and e- even prior to that. You know, the time that it takes to get a good maintenance tech or a home tech in our case, or a community manager up to speed, you know, I I think it's a six month minimum journey. And really it's a couple of years before they're good at their job, what I consider good at their job. So, you know, scaling is challenging. It's exciting, but you know, the people are one of the biggest challenges attracting and retaining the right type of talent. And without them, you know, I think if, if somebody was a, a coupon type guy, yield guy that was looking to, you know, really just get a seven, 8% yield on their money. That's one thing. Um, but if you're looking to buy deals with a lot of upside and particularly infill projects, or frankly, anything with deferred maintenance, you know, it, I think people dramatically underestimate the timeline and the resources required to turn those around. So, oh. you know, for us, you just, it's just, you can't pile too many of them together or you start to fail. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the park owned homes. Cause I'm, yeah. I'm not an advocate of park-owned yeah. homes. I think yeah. it has a lot to do with the markets that we're in, which are mainly yeah. 
secondary tertiary markets throughout the Midwest yeah. and, you know, other markets, people are able to rent park owned homes for $1,500 a month. Yeah. But I mean, tell us about your strategy with park owned homes and, you know, why you guys have chosen to, to go that way. So the, the strategy really came out of necessity, frankly. Our portfolio in Maine, we bring in maybe 20 new homes a year and we don't keep any of them as rentals. Um, that it's mm -hmm. to your point, each market is unique and we're able to sell those homes you know, at cost or a, a very small margin, and we can do it at a pace that makes sense. The reason that I say we've kind of um, embraced the park on home model and, and it was done out of necessity is we'll buy 750 spaces that have 350 vacant lots. And if, wow. if you just really extrapolate out a sales model and, you know, let's say you have five-year money and you've got a, a sales model exclusively, if you are doing a phenomenal job and I'm not to say that this can't be done better, but you know, four homes a month, that's a lot, you know, 50 homes a year yeah. is, a, is a pretty strong pace. But if you think about that, and then look at your underlying debt, especially if you assume that the first six months, you've got to get your house in order, get your team put together, you've got to get a dealer's license in the state, you've got to get your, your funding available, you know, six to 12 months, you're not bringing in new homes, you're likely dealing with existing inventory and abandoned homes and things like that. So you're really starting this process at your end of year one. And then if you say, okay, even that pretty wild four home per month absorption rate, you know, you're going to fill 200 vacant lots. And, and I would say that's twice as much too aggressive. In other words, two a month is, is probably more accurate. Of course, market dependent, of course, depends on price of the home and the other, you know, inventory in that market. But my point is we had to fill a lot of lots quickly um, in order to be able to take out our acquisition debt. And, you know, we, we typically use pretty creative funding to close some of these deals that are considered distressed or not, you know, not eligible for Fannie or Freddie or even CMBS money. And so we have a clear goal in terms of occupancy. And one of the only ways to accomplish that was through a faster absorption rate, which in our case, in most of our markets has proven to be rentals. And initially I'll say we started with a lease with a purchase option, not a rent to own. There's a distinction, but nonetheless, we were attempting in the early years to mirror ownership. We really wanted to be the traditional, you know, we're going to own the lots, you're going to own the home. But that presented some challenges that we discovered later in that process. And nonetheless, the exclusive sales model was just not, not going to be fast enough. And so, you know, over the last 15 years, We've learned a ton of lessons and we, we operate our home entities profitably. Um, it requires more personnel. It's a higher touch business. It's more effort. Um, it's not a high margin business, but we look at it holistically. So if we're creating 40 to $60,000 in value, every time we take a vacant lot and make it performing, we're, um, we're okay with the additional effort that it takes for a relatively small return to get there. And, and what I'd say too, is these are phases for us. There's like an iteration or life cycle of the deal. So ultimately we'll, we'll sell off the, you know, sort of bottom 10 or 20% of the home portfolio. Um, and we'll work towards your more traditional, um, you know, park. However, you know, for us, that could be a 10 or even 20 year journey. And in the meantime, we're going from 50% occupancy to 90 plus percent, and we're doing it profitably. And we're doing it at the pace that the market will absorb. So you know, if, if patient, if it's slow too, and steady, yeah. mm -hmm. which I think, I think is 
totally realistic that the market, you know, like we're finding we have one property where we have 15 vacant homes right now that yeah. we brought in, rehabbed, got them ready to go. But the absorption is we sell maybe one or two uh, a month. Yeah. And it's it's just taken longer. It's not like, you know, you're going to be able to sell all those in a single month. Just the market, yeah. there's not that many people looking for housing. So that's fine. I think the other big piece too is, you know, if, if you look at it as all equity. So let's say a single wide, you know, of course, they used to buy them for 22,000 for 1676. Today, it's more like 65, 70,000. But, you know, the point is, if you, you if you're using all equity, and, and you are buying park owned homes, as opposed to buying more parks and real estate, I think that it's going to break down pretty quickly, the strategy, you're not going to want to put your equity into the homes. However, if you're using leverage, and in our case, that's roughly 80%. So we have maybe a 20% downstroke into the home piece, which we also usually recycle that through, you know, various refis and things like that. You end up with actually a reasonable rate of return on your 20%. And it's um, it's accretive to the overall value creation of the whole deal. And so for us, that's how we look at it as a standalone business. You know, would I go buy park-owned homes in someone else's park? Never. Um, that's not my business model, and I wouldn't advocate it. And frankly, I wouldn't advocate the strategy for anybody who's not comfortable with it. But for us, the way that we capitalize that effort and the way that we recycle our equity and improve the debt on the park-owned homes over, you know, say a five or 10-year period, it, it has worked really well for us. And, I, and honestly, I don't know how we would have done it in some of these markets otherwise. Yeah. So. And I mean, I think you said you had 5,000 lots and like a thousand park owned homes. Yeah. So, you know, a thousand park owned homes kind of gives me a little heartburn right away, but then yeah. it's like, oh, well, that's only 20% of your portfolio. So right. you still, right. uh, you still have a lot of tenant owned homes as well, but that's, right. that's fantastic. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Sure. And yeah, really interesting. So how has your, has your mobile home park investing strategy changed at all through your years in the business, you know, compared <laughs> to like, your first park obviously was like a big value add. Are you still yeah. looking for those type of projects? I still like the value add because in terms of acquisition criteria, you know, everybody seems to have a hurdle in terms of rate of return. But the thing that that I personally look at primarily is, is equity growth multiple. So I'm more interested in my coverage ratio and having debt that I can sleep with at night. But going forward, I'm looking for deals that I can create a lot of value, whether that's you know, increasing rents, whether it's um, submetering utilities, whether it's being more efficient with expenses. Um, but more often than not, the deals that that seem to line up for me are, you know, big infill or vacancy play issues, in addition to those other things, those other levers. So, um, so I, you know, we tend to have focused on that type of stuff. And, and I guess what I would say is, in the past, I was, you know, it's easy to fly anywhere in the country. So in the past, you know, I'd fly to Alabama, um, and I'm you know from California, or I'd I'd go to Illinois. And what I've learned is that there's nothing wrong with that. But for me personally, in terms of changes, it's not so much the deal criteria itself in terms of the physical park or the the return requirements. It's really more around, even though we're very comfortable operating at a distance, we we really have you know want to stick with this concentration strategy. Where I've seen people have problems is, and we've experienced it ourselves, we have one park, even if it's 80 to 100 spaces, you know, being able to have that park operate at, you know, 40, 45% OPEX ratio and have the right on-site folks and throw in enough profit and value creation potential is tough. And especially if you go down to a 40 or 50 space park, like 
even if it's a phenomenal like 11 cap acquisition and it's great great deal they're hard to pass and in the past i wouldn't pass up on those and today i do and and it's really funny because early on i had a, a limited partner who was kind of a higher net worth guy and i was a small time guy i didn't have any money at all when i started and i would take him deals where i was like we're going to make 50 grand on this in 4 months single family flip type thing and he wouldn't do it and i had i had a track record of doing it like it was super predictable of course there's risk in anything but in my mind like this is a slam dunk and he would tell me no and i'd get so frustrated because i'm like man i don't know why you don't see this but what i've learned over the last couple of decades is something can be a great deal for somebody it doesn't necessarily mean it's a great deal for you and it's not because it doesn't it's not going to produce a great return but for me my time is more valuable to me than making an extra 1200 bucks a month and i don't mean that in any kind of slight 1200 bucks means a lot to me however i'd rather move into deals where i can create millions of dollars or tens of millions and more importantly i'd rather do it within the my personal sort of life balance where i've got folks who i've worked with for a decade who are going to execute for me i don't have to go out and try to solve a problem on one lot in a 40 space park you know an eight hour flight away so that, that's a change and i wouldn't have said that even probably 12 years ago i i so I guess as you get older, you you evolve. Um, and that's one of the ways I've changed um, in terms of criteria. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for, for sharing that. Yeah. What do you think about like secondary tertiary markets versus like primary markets at this stage? In your yeah, it's, it's really funny. I mean, I've focused on those primarily my whole career. And it was, again, almost out of necessity. When I'd go into those big core markets and big, big MSAs, they were kind of crowded out. And I made my way into a few of them. And what I found actually is that I didn't enjoy the experience as much. And, and the reason why is because we've had the most success. And again, this is referencing vacancy upside. You know, in some of those larger markets, there's a lot more supply. Um, not only is there more competition, so you're getting bid down in terms of cap rates and you're paying more. But in addition to that, you have more supply or more potential new supply that comes into the market. Most of the secondary and tertiary markets that we move into there's one common denominator in that supply constraint. So as long as you have diverse economic drivers and you have a, a supply demand imbalance, that's actually what my preference is. I would rather go, go into a 60,000 population market than a 2 million population market in most cases. And the underlying reason, if I had to articulate one factor, it's the supply demand imbalance. And, and you know, if, if I was buying a park that was full and I was really just looking at long-term market rent upside then i probably would have a different perspective but the predictable attainable value creation for us has come in secondary and tertiary markets that are somewhat ignored or excluded from larger operators criteria we get a better in, you know going in price and we also can get market share so we can kind of dominate and or dictate street rents in a way we prefer to draft behind one of the bigger guys let them you know, let them be the bad guy and we still have a competitive advantage drafting a little behind them. But nonetheless, you know, having market share, you know, we're in a market with 1300 spaces and we own 900 of them in mm -hmm. one case. And that it's not a bad position. So that's kind of part of the strategy that we've kind of learned along the way and, and kind of embrace. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Ben. That's, it seems like you guys are very strategic and I, I like that. You know, I consider your model very similar to ours, you know, okay. it's like, there's very easy upside here. There's vacant right. lots. 
you know, fill the 20 vacant lots and you're going to add tremendous amount of value for every yeah. dollar you spend. You're typically doubling it. So yeah, that's really awesome. And I love, I love that you're fighting for the secondary and tertiary markets as well, because there's more mom and pop owners typically I've yeah. found in those markets. And you can, you know, we, we got all of our deals have been bought off market through cold yeah. calling and yeah. that's where we're able to find the, the better, the better deals. Ben, what, what mistakes have you made in mobile home park investing that you think our listeners could learn from? I mean, it better question is what mistakes haven't I made? Um, you know, going back to the first park, you know, missing a ton of stuff on due diligence. I mean, that's the classic response. And it's a good one because you don't know what you don't know. And anything substructure can bite you and it tends to be expensive. But the thing that I would say that um, I think is actually probably more powerful to, for people to understand is, you know, bad assumptions. So, you know, we, we usually did a pretty good job even early on in terms of assessing the market. Um, and, and our due diligence was weak in the beginning. So we've learned a ton of, made a ton of mistakes there and learned a lot. But the thing that actually hurt more than that was bad assumptions regarding um, how capital intensive things were and how long it would take. So, you know, typically in the early days, we were wrong by 100%. Um, it, if we thought it was going to be 300 grand, it was six. And if we thought it was a two-year journey, it was probably four or five. And the reason I point that out is because that, that kind of thing can lead to big problems with your capital. It can put you in a bad spot with your debt. And worse, if you've created expectations for your LPs around your budget or your pro forma or your execution, that's a tough spot to be in. And thankfully, you know, when I learned those lessons, I had one partner who was very understanding. We were along the journey together. He knew that you know, it was a learning curve. And neither of us enjoyed being wrong in that way but we kind of owned them together, even though I was the operator and the, ultimately the one who made the mistake. But trying to get tighter on those assumptions and avoid the urge to assume that you can do so much better than sort of industry standard, I think is a pretty valuable lesson to learn as early as you can in your career. And it was a big one for me. That's great advice. Yeah. And back to the due diligence piece, because I've made mistakes as well. You know, I always say like, you know, at the MHU boot camp, you get this 30 day due diligence yeah. handbook as like a starter point, but there's so many things like the, really like the big important stuff I've learned from trial and error yeah. just by doing and learning and finding out things that have changed. And now, you know, I think it started at 50 bullet points was like our initial due diligence checklist. Yeah. Now it's like over 300 bullet points long because mm -hmm. we've just learned something on every deal to make an extra phone call or check an extra you know, items. So I'm yeah. sure you've done the same. hundred percent. And, and it's, sometimes it's stuff that you've never encountered, you know, you've done a hundred parks or 80 parks or whatever, and there's still something new that comes up in some municipality that yeah. it wasn't in any of the books and you didn't encounter it before, but, you know, being able to handle those kind of blows and, and figure out solutions, kind of persevere through that. That's the differentiator between folks who kind of wash out and, and people who figure it out and ultimately are successful, but they're tough. They're, they're tough to, uh, to work through in the moment. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Ben, I just have two more questions for sure. you. Uh, what would you say are the most important things that passive investors need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks? You know, they really need to understand, in my view, their deal sponsor and the GP. They, you know, track record referrals, history is really important. You know, I, I also think that a lot of people don't understand what they're signing. Uh, as crazy as that sounds, you know, you're going to, as an LP, you're going to see a lot of documents, maybe a PPM, maybe an operating agreement. You know, these things seem boilerplate. They seem like legalese, but 
you know, I've seen a lot of people get twisted up with one another over just different expectations. And, you know, sometimes it's not even fraud or, or, you know, in the extreme cases, that's what happens. But in a lot of cases, it's really just a misalignment of understanding. And so for me, you know, if I was putting my money alongside someone passively, I'd really want to know who that person is, their track record, what their focus is going to be, because a lot of groups, you know, raise a lot of money and they go and buy a lot of deals. And it's really, really difficult to maintain focus across that, especially when you're growing so quickly. So nothing taken away, nothing from any of those folks. Some of them do a phenomenal job and they're really safe, probably investments for folks. But if, if I was putting myself in those shoes, you know, I'd, I'd dig in more and take personal responsibility, even though I'm going to be passive on the front end, I would put in a lot more effort than I see a lot of people do to understand what I'm getting involved in. And yeah. I think it's a big mistake Great for too. those who don't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is there anything specifically that you would do to try to vet that operator? Like- you know, the, yeah, I mean, I, I think track record is a big deal. Um, but, you know, it's hard because some of the folks don't have a ton of experience and I didn't either. And I, I don't think I was a bad bet. However, if somebody's criteria would have been, you know, we want to see that you've done this 20 times, you know, they wouldn't have put their money with me. So, you know, I'm not trying to be critical of anybody, but I think the track record probably is the, the thing that you could lean on the most. And what I'd look for too is not just all their wins, but what happened when you encountered the tougher stuff? Because, you know, in 08, I had a ton of friends who tossed keys back to banks. And it was kind of a common practice. I never did. I had probably my worst real estate deal I ever did was five single family homes, brand new homes in Gulf Shores, Alabama. I didn't know anything about the market, but I had a bunch of money that I needed to put to work. And it was called the Gulf, uh, the go zone at the time, the Gulf opportunity zone. So it was a the mistake I made there is I, I leaned more into the tax advantage and less into my diligence in the market and the deal itself. And it burned me. And I probably had a four or $5,000 a month negative carry on something that started out being a four or $5,000 a month positive carry. And I only highlight that because it, it wasn't okay for me to turn the keys back into the bank when it got tough. And the reason is because, well, first of all, I was against the way that I think about things, but not being a Pollyanna that happens in the big boy world of investing. I didn't do it because my reputation and my ability to borrow um, going forward would have been forever um, hurt. So I, I think that if I was looking at track record, I'm not just looking for everybody's wins and show me, you know, your 14 or 16% IRR, show me the deals that didn't work out and how, how'd you manage it? How'd you minimize losses? How did you work through it? How'd you turn it into a win? Don't think that's a common question. And, and I don't think you can show me an operator anywhere that has any kind of track record that hasn't hit a rough spot. Not necessarily a loss, but you know something that could have been or something that was a surprise. And how did you manage it? Yeah, that's great advice, Ben. Thank you so much for that. Sure. Um, last question: Where do you see yeah. the future of mobile home park investing going? Like, obviously, interest rates are are pretty high right now. You know, there's possible recession talks. What do you think? You know, I'm very bullish on the industry in general. I think that sometimes we're our own worst enemy and we shoot ourselves in the foot with headlines of crazy rent increases and stuff like that. At the same time, you know, there's a ton of deals out there that are way under market and they need to come up in order to remain viable. So there's there's a balance between, you know, that comment. But generally speaking, I think the business is a um, phenomenal space to be in even today. I'm, I buy a park today, I bought one this month. So I'd, I still would be a big advocate for people looking at it, the opportunity. 
I do think it's going to get harder to do what we do, primarily because of government intervention. You know, we're in a tough spot because some of the folks that we're dealing with have you know, limited resources and there's more and more pressure put on those. And, and it seems as though the public sector kind of looks uh, to us on the private sector to kind of solve some of those societal issues. Um, and I think that they're going to continue to look at things like rent control and all sorts of other stuff that's going to make our life, frankly, more challenging to do what we do. But that said, I think there's going to continue to be demand. I think that there's no other form of detached housing that can compete with us. I think we're a huge solution to an even bigger problem. And so, and, and I think there's a lot of headroom in a lot of places, especially some of these secondary markets. So you can still offer an incredibly compelling value proposition to the consumer while still making a tremendous amount of money. So, and I, I think that looking at it from each of those participants' angles is key to doing it successfully long-term. You know, think of it from the consumer's perspective as well as ownership. And if you do that, there's a lot of reason to be really excited about the business in my mind. Totally agree so, with you. Ben, thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. A lot of fun. Awesome. So, if anyone uh, of the listeners would like to get a hold of you, what, what would be the best way for them to do so? You know, probably email. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there, but also just ben at saddlebackpro.com. That's my email. So, uh, you know, we don't sell anything or offer any services and we really don't even take outside money, but um, love talking about the business. So if, if I can help anyone, I'm happy to do that. So yeah. awesome. Well, thanks again, yeah. Ben. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, that's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Would you like to see Mobile Home Park value add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at Passive MHP Investing for photos and awesome videos from our recent Mobile Home Park acquisitions. Once again, that's at Passive MHP Investing on Instagram. See you there. <laughs>